Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Sunday session, 6th of December, 2020. It's great. Thank you for joining me. Uh, this is our weekly time of exploring nature-centered folklore, connecting this to your favorite sanctuary space, which was foggy here at Karakrori, so I'm indoors and hope you're cozy where you are. And then expressing your inspired visions from your sanctuary through your poetry, writing, art, craft, any performance, problem solving, and your vocation. Now, today's Sunday session is loosely titled December Traditions. Now, the intent uh, for the next hour is to share with you some less familiar, maybe, uh, observances, gratitude, celebrations, and recognitions that people share during this time. And what they're going to be presenting are some winter tree traditions, which includes your Christmas tree, caroling, and mumming and folk drama. Now, I was going to include wassailing, but uh, a special guest who, who was going to feature with that can't join us today, and it was going to be a bit much for one session. So I'm going to cover wassailing on the 27th of December Sunday session, uh, that and first footing, and the, there are some links to both, which is quite interesting. But you'll hear me mentioning wassailing because some of the things I'm going to talk about uh, for the next hour is going to connect to that because it's a very ancient tradition. Now, guest on this session uh, this afternoon is Jim Ledwith, who's the captain of the Orgakili Maud Mummers. And I'm sure you're going to find the Mummers section when I get to it very entertaining. Uh, I hope, Jim, uh, you're there and you can log on okay. He's not in the green room yet, but hopefully by the time we get to chat with him, uh, he'll appear there. So uh, that'd be very entertaining uh, with him. So it'd be great. Now, mumming. Uh, I mentioned this when I was in the USA on visits. And when you mention mumming there, it's a very different uh, celebration. And in Canada, too, in Newfoundland. Uh, so what I'm going to be talking about is much more intimate. I've got a nice video demonstration as well. The one thing about the old mumming tradition, it does go back. Uh, the origins go back thousands of years. And uh, in a way, it's very men's shed. And I think a lot of these topics today are sort of men's sheddy. Uh, so there tends to be a sort of male leaning. But there are, as you'll be seeing, uh, young girls, young women are coming into the mumming. They're certainly doing the caroling. And uh, with a tree decoration, who puts the tree up these days? That's the other thing. Even with the men's shed today. Whose idea is it to bring a men's shed into an area? And who are the fundraisers and who make the tea and the scones? So it's it's kind of for everyone. Anyway, it's not going to be a, a gender-based uh, chat uh, this time. But I thought it's interesting to bring that up because in parts of it, where there's women's parts uh, in these folk dramas, women parts were actually played by men uh, in ancient times. Anyway, move along and let's have a see who's come to join us first thing. Um, we got our lovely usuals here. Uh, there's Sherry here. Uh, good morning, Sherry. Uh, lovely to see you. And uh, Kimberly, good morning to you. Cold one with snow and ice in Boston. 
our snow's melted. We got the very thick fog. And Donna's here from New Mexico. Thank you, Donna. Lovely. And Shell as well. Wonderful. And Brittany from Winnipeg. Lovely. And uh, lovely to see uh, Claire here. And there's other people uh, joining on as I speak. And there's Jay Riley. Hi there. Uh, so fabulous. Thanks uh, for joining. And I'll move on to share what I got here. Uh, it's quite a collection of pictures and a few things uh, to chat about. So um, I will uh, get rid of the dry throat first. Sorry about that. So trees, trees in December, celebrations with trees. Well, of course, we're familiar with the Christmas trees, and we're familiar when we see them. They kind of take on a cone shape. And uh, I have heard from people, well, when you look at them, they're triangular, and that represents the Trinity. But uh, I think that's sort of off the cuff myself. But uh, the Christmas tree tradition that we practice today seems to have started as a Lutheran, a Lutheran tradition in Germany. And it seems to trace back to a Martin Bootser. I don't know much about him, but it said that he had erected the first fir tree in the center of Strasbourg, the German one, not the French one, in 1939. And uh, the idea uh, took off. So excuse me if that is, I hope that is the German one I'm showing you there, not the French one. Anyway, it's a tree somewhere in a, a Strasbourg somewhere. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Prince Albert, I think this is what's probably known much uh, more, is Prince Albert of the UK royalty, the German married Victoria, and uh, he brought the tradition over and he put one up in Buckingham Palace in 1835. And there's some sort of illustration of him putting it up with uh, uh, the palace. And I think this is another one as well. Uh, oh, it's certainly in the palace, some people there working for them, celebrating uh, with it. And uh, it seemed to become a UK tradition of patriotism by 1841. Uh, there's a sort of a British tradition thing there. Um, and the, I like this one. Uh, ah, I got tech problems. And there's, uh, there's a sort of family chilling it out around their tree there. Ah, so okay. Uh, yeah, I got a little check. Ah, anyway, I'll move on. And USA, it became a commercial success. Uh, the Christmas trees there. Uh, 1870. I, there we go. Um, it's a bit sticky getting the pictures up. So that, by the 1870s, that was a sort of U.S. family at that time. And uh, the actual stars, they never thought they decorated the trees, but they didn't really put much on the top. It was really in the 1890s that the... Um, stars four-pointed stars started to come on top and fairies there uh, by the nine 1930s and then there were the uh, five-pointed stars they started up in the 50s and i've got a nice selection if if this will behave uh if i can get the pictures up uh some nice ones maybe when uh the no i'm not getting much i have to use some other tech thing for getting there let's show you these stars Right, five-pointed, there we go. No, they're really, sorry, I'm not getting my pictures up at all. There we go, that's five-pointed. 
maybe this was the uh, time of the wickers really taking off. So you've got the five-pointed stars taking off. There's a wicker one here. It's uh, very sluggish. Come on up. Uh, sorry about this being slow. I hope uh, everything... There we go. I think this must be the service that's slow, not my equipment. There we go. We, we, I'm clogging it here. And then uh, here's another five-pointer. There you go. <laughs> there he goes. There's that one uh, too. So that's a selection of the five-pointed stars that people are putting up. Anyway, an older tradition than Christmas treeing is the wassailing blessing of apple trees. And I was going to do that today, but I'm going to present that on the 27th of December. It's really an early January tradition, but over the recent years, the last 50 years or so, there's people been celebrating that between uh, in bulk, uh, between Sawan and the Imbolc, uh, that whole three-month winter period. And again, uh, wassailing like the Christmas tree is of Germanic origin. Uh, Claire and I were at a kind of a festivaly conference thing over in northeast uh, Germany, and we were right in the spot where the um, wassailing uh, came from. And of course, nobody had heard of it there, so. Kind of gave a demonstration there. It was great fun. But apples in Europe, in Ireland as well, very much a staple uh, for winter, um, long before potatoes came along, and certainly before carrots. Obviously, you, could, you don't have a, a pile of mashed. Well, you could have a pile of mashed apple, but an apple a day was definitely a thing through the winter. They had the racks for drying. So apples were definitely a, a, an important staple for good health. So they were celebrated, and the apple trees were celebrated. And, of course, the cider is all part of that. And I often brought up on the Sunday sessions how biting an apple is believed to make a wish, that sense that when you bite an apple, and the belief that dreams will come true after you bite into it. But I covered that during the Om uh, divination session. Another customer custom, and I believe this is uh, actually quite horrific, um, and uh, especially happening in Ireland, it's the, sorry, I'm still, it's the banging of coins into a tree, and, and then making a wish. How the idea of uh, sacrificing coinage uh, this way for prosperity, I do not know. Uh, because, for one, the uh, peasants themselves, they would have hardly had any currency in their pocket. So the only thing that I can think of is that maybe it was the currency Lairds gave them when they went to Wassling, because some of them were more generous. It wasn't just food and drink. They actually gave them a coin or two for their pockets, so maybe that's what that came out of. Uh, but there's also the belief that banging uh, coins into trees uh, kills them, and I believe that for years and years. I thought, well, that metal, that toxic metal is going to uh, actually kill them, but surprisingly, uh, that's far from true. And the coins will, may actually, the minerals from the coins may actually feed the trees. I'm still very uncomfortable about it. I'm uncomfortable about any metal in trees practice, but it goes on. And banging coins in trees is a huge custom. Um, and these trees where they notice some of those I showed you, they were fallen down trees anyway. So, of course, there's nothing wrong in that. The tree had actually fallen over. I just hope it wasn't the banging. The 
coins in, but as I'm told, no, that doesn't do that. They're just old trees that fall and, and people carry on banging the coins in them. But they're wish trees. Where the coins are, they're known as wish trees. And they're a popular custom, very much today a popular custom around Ireland, Scotland, Cumbria and Northumbria in uh, England. And uh, in Scotland especially, this is accompanied, if I can uh, get some more up here, by what's uh, kind of called the Afon, uh, Afon Kiss tradition, where each coin banged into the tree with one blow by a man is to demonstrate to his lady friend his prowess, and then they have the Afon Kiss. But sadly, um, many trees beside holy wells and or sacred wells They've also become coin wish trees and nails in them as well. Uh, they become nail banging trees. And there was a well uh, if I, that uh, got filled up in a place, Mount Rathing, County Leash, uh, here in Ireland. And uh, here it is. And uh, that's roughly where the well was. It was filled in. And, uh, and then here's a sort of color one. Note the tree on that. Um, and uh, it was uh, some Finton as well. And this is an old uh, picture of how it was before. And uh, what happened was uh, the sycamore here, uh, they actually put this uh, sycamore. The well was filled in, the farmer or whoever uh, filled it in, found it was a nuisance, maybe cattle were sinking down. So put the um, sycamore there, you see on the left there, that's an aerial view. And uh, so that's where the well was. And then after the sycamore, I don't know if it was planted there or whether it got there by nature, the well actually came back up and re-emerged, and it's actually around uh, that tree now. But what people do is they stride over the well that's reappeared, and, of course, this is what they do. They stick coins in. That's the, <laughs> that's the black and white of that. And because they believe that's what's going to bring them the blessings, prosperity, and uh, good luck. But these wishing tree traditions and some of the wassailing traditions I'll be talking about are still existing with what we do with our Christmas tree. That's why I've been talking about these. It's what we do on a Christmas tree today. For example, we hang baubles on our Christmas trees, don't we? And who amongst you uh, or amongst us know why we put baubles? They're pretty, they're sparkly, but it's really representing hanging apples. And now uh, someone's got the idea of that, and you can actually buy baubles that are apples <laughs> in the shape of apples. And they're there to bless us and return us wishes from our Christmas tree. And there are some people that actually still uh, hang real apples. And here's someone who sliced up an apple and made it into a Christmas decoration and showing the five-point star that you get in the middle of an apple, very clever. And uh, here's another, I think I've had to put this up because I think this is very jolly. Uh, it's to allow the pets to feed <laughs> the apple at the bottom uh, of the Christmas tree there. So, uh, and another thing we do, I don't see it so much these days, is the hanging of uh, chocolate coins. Uh, when I was a wee lad, it was the big thing, you know, chocolate coins be put on the tree. You can't wait to pull them down. And I think probably that's why you don't see chocolate coins on trees anymore because they're eaten between buying them at little and getting them home so they never get to the tree maybe uh but this is connected to me to the banging of coins into the trees and the gifts of coins 
um, the lairds, I was uh, in caroling, boxing day, wassailing, some of the generous lairds, as I was saying, they will give coins. And sometimes there's a little bag of coins if you're very lucky, if it's been a good year for them. And so they give the bag of coins. And uh, I think I got uh, some wee pictures of this. This is this is a weird one. This is uh, this is the only picture I could get uh, of a hanging coin. But sometimes the coins themselves have little cotton things. But they've got this. Someone's got very elegant. There you go. That, that's uh, how long is that going to stay on the tree before some child comes along and and has a, a wee midnight come down for a wee midnight snack with that. But that's all about uh, wishing, you know, the coins for blessings and wishing. And I'll talk more about that and wassailing. There was a time as well when uh, caroling uh, was sung at the Christmas and the wishing tree. And uh, the, the real tradition of this is to do the singing before you actually put up the decorations. And especially before you put the apples, the baubles up and put the coins in. You, you're kind of doing the praise and gratitude through the song, and then your own wish comes after that. That's the kind of etiquette sequence, I suppose it is. And you do that uh, around the tree. And I should have a, a family that's uh, leaping around the tree here doing just that, singing carols by the tree. There you go. There they go. They're, they're having a bit of a session with that there. Um, great. Jim hasn't turned up yet. Are you there, Jim? <laughs> and uh, as I say, we put uh, the five and four and five pointed stars, angels, fairies, and sometimes at the base of the tree, we'll place a doll, a baby. It used to be done, I think, as a tradition at Yule to celebrate the grand conception, but more familiar uh, is placing the baby Jesus, the Christ, uh, on Christmas Day. Uh, being born then. Now, most people are very aware of Jesus Christ wasn't actually born on 25th of December, but that symbolism, it draws passion from millions of people. So some people will actually merge the pre-Christ thought of this being a change towards lighter days, and then they're looking at Christ as also being the light that's about to come for them. Myself, I think it's to do with this ancient belief around the world and I, I've talked about this before, that the spirits of children actually come from trees. And some believe that the spirits of children are born from trees. And there's many world traditions, and some have faded away now, that every newborn child is associated with a new sprouted or a deliberately planted tree. And, uh, and if I can get to it, here is uh, my granddaughter with that very thing, Liz Ayla, with her ailer oak, and uh, and so that tree grows with a child, and uh, it's there for each rite of passage of life, such as uh, connected with uh, becoming an adult, uh, uh, engagement in partnership, uh, wedding, any kind of union, celebrating births, and the eventual passing over. Uh, if it's an oak tree, that's going to last, that's going to live longer than any of us, hopefully. And people uh, actually deposit parts of themselves onto these uh, trees, whether it's the wishing tree, the trees by the well, or the trees that are born for them that they are part of in their rites of passage. And uh, the parts of them is usually a locket of hair and sometimes um, 
some of our fragments of clothing. I, this was a lovely one that I saw. It isn't a fragment of hair, but this was a nice, simple, natural one. This was from a lady from Hong Kong who was visiting near Tara, and that, that was how she approached uh, Wishing Tree. I thought it was beautiful. But we're more familiar with these rag trees, which originated where fragments of clothing were used as well uh, as a blessing for themselves. Of course, we look at rag trees as a, putting rags up with a blessing of healing. But I think in ancient times, it was really to celebrate our connection of our spirit uh, to the trees. Um, now, many communities believe or, and, or did believe that spirits pass on to the chieftain trees like oak, ash, elm, and they pass from us through the water that fades from us uh, after death. And trees are believed to be where we can pass on our, if we're feeling ill and we're feeling sick, we could actually pass our sickness on to the trees and we will not harm them because they're not going to get ill by the same illnesses that we do. So we can uh, pass our illnesses on to them. And during visits uh, to these trees, I, I believe it's, uh, it's, it's, we have faith. We have faith that can be released from our sickness. And we do that if we deposit our hair or deposit uh, clothing fragments and hang them. And sometimes uh, people push them uh, into holes. They find holes and cracks uh, in the trees and then push them in. I don't think I've got a, no, I don't have a, a picture of that, uh, unfortunately. Um, but some local traditions believe that if anyone ill is ill or they feel ill and they lay beside their dedicated tree or the wishing tree and sleep, they'll actually receive dreams of what they need to do to become healed. Uh, and among the tree blessing uh, wisdom, uh, it's also important to include the holly and ivy. So I'll go into the holly and ivy next. Um, and they were a huge winter solstice symbolism before there was Christianity. Uh, here's some holly and ivy together there. And with the arrival of uh, Christianity, the bringing of holly and ivy, it's a very ancient tradition to bring that in for various reasons. But as soon as Christianity came in, it was banned. It was certainly banned by the Catholic Church. The only place Christian places it was allowed was the Protestant areas of the UK and Germany. They're the only ones, and they were reluctant with the ivy, which I'll explain later, but they allowed holly in and ivy to a certain degree. So before Christianity, from the fragments uh, we know, uh, the um, holly was regarded uh, as a winter king. And here's a, a holly winter king here. And, uh, and then, of course, Ivy was his queen of winter. And uh, I've got a nice picture. There we go. Someone's artist depiction of the holly and the ivy queen to, uh, king and queen together. But as I say, none of these um, greens were allowed. Actually, even in ancient times, you couldn't bring these greens in by tradition uh, until the solstice had passed. We had to have made our wishes and our affirmations of solstice and celebrations. Once the point of solstice had passed, that's when the greens, the holly and ivy, uh, could come in. 
And there was a bit of a gender challenge with this too. Uh, if the holly got into the home before the ivy, then that did mean that the oldest male of the home was who ruled and made decisions for the household for the following year. But if the ivy got in first, then it was the oldest female that ruled the roost. And these were traditions I've read about and heard about in what's now uh, the Midlands, north of England and south of Scotland. Uh, but under the uh, Christians that did allow holly and ivy, ivy uh, after a while wasn't allowed in. Ivy had to be outside and hanging on the doorway, supposedly to protect the home from lightning and fire. And there's a bit of a contradiction there because uh, you might be familiar of the Holly King and the Oak King. And the Oak King, uh, Holly and the Oak, are often together. But in the summer, the Holly King, the leaves are covering the Holly. And you can walk past and you don't see the Holly. But in the winter, midwinter, when the Oak, is bare of leaves. There is the holly there in full green bluster. Now, the one thing you're familiar with the needles on the holly. In I, you might have heard me talk about this before, but uh, and I will mention about it again in Imbol. But when there's lightning, thunder and lightning, we don't get much of that now. But uh, when there is, of all the trees in the wood, the tree that's most likely to be hit by the lightning is the holly. Is the oak. But if there's a holly there, the lightning will actually hit the prickles of the holly, and that's a conductor that protects the oak. So there, the holly is protecting the oak. I should have put some photos of that up, but we got some local examples of that. But here, I'm talking about the tradition of the ivy on the outside of the house being to protect the home from lightning. And I wonder if it's that tradition is behind when you actually got these old cottages that have ivy growing up the walls and especially around the doorway. I wonder if that's leaning over from that. Now, mistletoe. Mistletoe. If you include some mistletoe, um, bring that into the house. Now, if you've got the mistletoe into the house, you can bring both the holly and the ivy in. Again, don't do that until after the solstice moment. But uh, when the mistletoe is there, it bonds the holly and ivy union. And uh, the, in that case, the mistletoe needs to enter the home first. Now mistletoe, and here it is, it's on the actual tree. This is what it looks like when it's on an oak and sometimes on apple. It's believed to bless fertility, and this is why I bring it in on the point of solstice, bless fertility, and ignites the light that's to come and encourages that new incubation of new life to be born at Imbolc for the spring. And also the mistletoe being in the home is said to protect us against the spirits of eternal dark and barrenness. So when you bring the, the mistletoe in, it stops, or so the Druids would have uh, said, it stops, uh, it stops the, the long nights continuing right through the following year. That's what they used to kid the people along with that. Bring the mistletoe in and the days will get longer and there'll be more fertility. So that's what the mistletoe is there to bring the light, to bring the sun, to bring the longer days, and to protect the darkness continuing to take us over, which it has done up until the solstice. Now, the Christian translation in the UK and Germany was uh, when they picked up the, the popularity of the traditions of holly and ivy. Of course, Christians came along and said, oh, yes, holly is representative of Jesus's crown of thorns 
and Ivy is a reminder to cling to God for support and guidance right through our lives. Now, when the, um, onto something else here, when the tradition of giving food gifts by the Lairds to the peasant land workers changed from inviting them, because the peasants, I suppose, uh, where the word pagan comes from, uh, when they went door to door with the caroling, with the wassailing, uh, they would get food and drink and maybe coins. Now that got changed. There's the Boxing Day tradition. And this is when this has happened. Boxing Day is the same as St. Stephen's Day in Ireland. And this was the time the Lairds would host the country workers along with their kitchen workers. And they would invite them uh, all to mix together, all of the house staff and all of the um, ground staff to have dinner together. And they would appoint a hall in the country house where everybody would gather together. It'd be away from the gentry. They didn't eat with the gentry. It's still separate. But they might get the larger hall, the gentry get the smaller hall. And that hall, they were encouraged to hang a wreath. Um, and what they would do is, I haven't got the bare bones wreath, but this is the best of the representative I can get for that. Oh, I forgot there's this one. That's nice. That's there's mistletoe, holly, and ivy together. That's nice. Anyway, uh, here's a wreath. And that uh, started off with ash or hazel branches. And I must admit, I haven't put them together much here. Maybe I'll show you one uh, after the solstice. But weave those together and then weave the holly and ivy uh, into your ash and hazel weaving there. Uh, here, they've skipped that and they've put some rosemary in it uh, because uh, rosemary weaved in as well as the holly and ivy was regarded as adding mary's uh, jesus mother mary is said to have been very fond of rosemary so uh, that's it and here's one uh, that i saw that's lovely and there's the rosemary and lavender all mixed together i think that's absolutely gorgeous uh i haven't got any dried lavender like that i wish i had that would have been a lovely uh, ring to have uh, put together uh, that would have been smashing anyway and the peasants were sometimes commissioned to actually make the same wreaths to hang over the feasting tables of the gentry as well anyway I, i'll give a little break in my chat uh, for a moment uh, before i get to the next subject still waiting for jim i think i might have to message him and ask where he is um and uh, who he got sherry um when I first moved to Maine, I had a store the name of the Holy King. Lovely. Uh, I wonder if it's a particular type of tree. What are you answering to there, um, uh, J. Riley? What, uh, I wonder if it's a particular type of tree. Is that for the wishing tree? For the wishing tree, it seems with uh, the where the coins are nailed in, it tends to be the chieftain-type trees where they do that more than anything, the oak and the ash, and, uh, we, well, we don't see many elms. Yes, I have seen it done in um, Hawthorns, and uh, Hawthorns, of course, Tara's a famous place, and there's someone who actually lives at the Tara village in Meath that comes along and pulls the coins out uh, because he thinks that it's killing them off. Um, yes, for the coins. Okay, I was answering that then. So generally, uh, the ones I showed you, they tend to be oak and ash. I, I would imagine beech and birch they would have done, but um, it wouldn't last very long. But 
you got the hawthorn sometimes they wouldn't dare do that to a blackthorn though because of the the code and the kind of she connection they regard as well that really bring the curse on you much more than the uh, hawthorn uh and uh you're enjoying oh great terry you're enjoying today's subject uh, i feel we got the best to come and Leymar, lovely to see you good morning good morning to you thank you for joining us and Didier is, hi, uh, Denise and Didier, who, who are quite neighbors here. Lovely to see you joined us here. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to have to uh, do a little wee message, see if I can get uh, Jim on, because I'm going to want Jim on for quite a long time today. So I want to try and get him on board. Uh, hang on, that's it. I'll just release from that. So, uh, yeah, I better, I'll just continue before I do message, see what he's up to. Uh, I, I'm going to talk about carols a bit. Uh, this is quite a brief one. Uh, I'm going to bring up a little notice about that because there's going to be some uh, spelling on this one. Um, but carols, the origin of uh, carols. Oh, we're going to have fun with this one. Carols, um, a tune, uh, they, before there were songs, well before there were songs, uh, was a tune style called, uh, it's kind of, I think, uh, Italian based, Coriula. And this was a dance uh, designed to accompany a flute. And uh, I, I suppose I might give him the game away uh, when I was actually asking for some requests and getting quite, I'm getting lined up here for something. And uh, this was a dance, as I say, to accompany a flute. And the, there's a Greek word. Uh, that you see there, the uh, choroulis, and that's what uh, the flute player that gets people dancing, and uh, that's where the carols uh, came from. And uh, there's a popular Christmas tune that's really ancient. I just want to take that uh, off. And uh, I get back into this, and I was asking around, and I'm talking about indulgent jubilo. It's a very, one of the ancient uh, tunes that we actually use for people to dance, the Coriola. And, um, and the one I like, because uh, a lot of people are familiar with the Bach's version where the words are put to it, and it's a ballad. But I love the ancient, more ancient medieval version, which was from one of these flute players for people to dance to. And uh, the version I love, uh, and it's quite a story, um, it was the one uh, by Mike Oldfield that was coming out as a, a hit. And uh, the mother of my children, she was actually booked for that session as a recorder player, but one of the sons was being born on the day she was supposed to attend the session. And so unfortunately got someone else. But I don't dare play the uh, Mike Oldfield version because if I did, uh, for the people who are watching on YouTube, they shut it down the moment started playing uh, because of the copyright conflict. So I asked if there were any tune players, and I asked some former partner if she could play it, and she's hardly played recorders for the last 20 years, so that was out of it. But I found these people, they don't have a name, and it's, I'm just going to give you a little sample, and I think YouTube won't cut me off uh, for this, but they do a lovely replication. I would say look up the YouTube, just look up uh, in Dulce Jubilo. They don't give the band a name. I think they just got together to do this reproduction and the, the bit I'm not playing uh, well I'll just play the video
All right. So I am sure a lot of you are familiar with that, and I think that's lovely. And and in that, uh, if you look it up on YouTube and listen to it, it's uh, beautiful uh, done. And these, there's a guy who plays lead guitar, and he's really practiced the Mike Oldfield leads, and he really does a, an incredible job of that. So uh, anyway, I hope that got you jigging for a moment. So that's how Carol started off. Um, but um, what happened was, the next step was, the people, as they were dancing around, and of course, there's a beat to it as they're dancing around, and they started doing, like, uh, people working in the field. They started doing the call and response chants, uh, and these call and responses were simple things related to Yule. And even wassailing verses, the wassailing songs, they have uh, call and response. Uh, so there's quite a... A bit of uh, a thing. There's a very uh, there's an example of one of the earliest call and responses that you're both familiar with, and uh, it's Christmas is coming. The goose is getting fat. Please put a penny in the old man's hat. And that's when these people dance around them begging. So that's one of the call and response things that developed from that. So what we call carols today seem to be a craft of bardic rhyming, as applied to these are the carols we're singing today. And there was bardic rhyming before Christianity. And I think the arrival of Gospels, the people started singing bits from the Gospels, maybe the Psalms, put them to these old rhythmic tunes that they used to dance to the flute players with. And that seems to have started up quite early uh, in the Gospel age, uh, early in the medieval age, about fourth century. And uh, so they incorporated songs about the birth of Jesus Christ and these were originally performed around the winter solstice. And these song carols, obviously, fourth century were oral and weren't scribed and weren't shared and, until at least a couple of hundred years later. So I assume uh, they were learned as joyful entertainment ways of spreading the gospel stories because people couldn't read. Uh, it was hard to memorize, you know, and if there's a tune and a jolly tune and you've got a call and a chant with it, people are memorize that and it was a way of spreading these gospel stories but carols themselves didn't get integrated into christmas celebration as we know it until well into the 13th century and this is all thanks to this lad here um there he is francis assisi and uh, he actually introduced the idea of singing carols into christmas services to make them more jolly because he had a bit of a problem going on um, is that uh, at the time of Francis Assisi, the popularity of Christmas was fading away. People were bored of Christmas. They weren't uh, celebrating, they weren't really appearing in the church for it, and so he had to do something. So he brought these jolly carols in. So when we combine the jolly carols with nativity plays, they were, to, they were put together a little bit like the folk and mumming plays. Um, so people enjoyed suddenly these carols and people enjoyed the entertainment and celebration of the carols and the nativity plays, bringing the two things into the church, made it more theatrical, made it more exciting. People felt they were really celebrating and Christmas became popular again. And the sort of carols from that time, 13th century, that were really up and running from the call and response. There was I Saw Three Ships. Holly and the Ivy, of course, 
and we wish you a Merry Christmas. They're all the songs from that medieval time that have survived to us uh, to this day. Now, most uh, carols today that we're familiar with, they're kind of written um, in Victorian times. They sort of came along with the Christmas cards uh, and a lot of the paraphernalia that came around the Victorian times. But there was a concern that beggars were going around as caroling in the same way uh, with the wassailing. And by the time it's Victorian times and the transition into industrial revolution coming along, people have been evicted, I suppose, from rural areas. They've been pushed into urban areas. They were poor. The poverty was starting. The homelessness was starting as there was this transition. So they were, uh, people were regarded as pests. They were being beggars coming around, singing carols, and uh, it got to the point, if you didn't give them money, they'd do some vandalism. So they wanted to bring respectability to caroling, and there was a group, singing group, called the Waits, and of course, the men, and mainly men. There's some Waits there doing their vocally singing, and, and they were the authorized door-to-door -door charity fundraisers, and they were fundraising for the poor, and they were uh, on behalf of the poor uh, to replace the the vandalizing beggars. So th that's how uh, caroling, carol singing. But before the uh, Victorian days, carol songs may have only been heard from peasants going door to door, begging, looking for their gifts of food, drink, or sometimes uh, coins. So I'm going to give this, it's a short thing on carols. I'll probably do something more in the course or next year. But to give you a short sum up, uh, hymns really are, are songs that are sung for God, and they're usually the Psalms uh, and inspired for them. Uh, but carols, their actually origin is to praise winter and the turn of winter towards spring. And that's the difference. Uh, in a way, you could say the hymns are sung for God and the carols are sung with God. They're sung with nature. So uh, that was that. I still haven't, uh, I still haven't got Jim here, so I'll, I'll message the Jim and see how he's getting on. And I'm just going to see how you're getting on, uh, Donna. I didn't know about <laughs> some Francis and Christmas carols. Uh, yeah, that's right. Along with the nativity, he's famous for that, isn't he? And uh, nice to get some reefs ideas. Uh, great. And uh, does mistletoe grow in Ireland? Uh, I've never seen it here. I've heard people uh, in, uh, funnily enough, uh, yeah, in Bridget, where I've heard of it, people have said they've seen him in Tipperary. So uh, check on that with people you know in Tipperary, seeing you're uh, from Tipperary. And I understand, I think they're purposely grown, uh, someone's purposely growing the mistletoe on the apples there, which is now done that apple trees do get seeded with the mistletoe. But the natural appearance of mistletoe, especially on oak, is a very rare thing. Uh, no, I've not seen it here, uh, which is strange because I've seen it in Scotland enough and I've seen it all over England and Wales. But So there, there's a hunt on. Is commercial mistletoeing, is it in uh, Tipperary? So good question uh, for that. Uh, anyone, this, 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 all the coins, yeah, we've answered that one. So excuse me a moment, because I'm going to go on to the mumming, and I want to find out where our mighty Jim is, because uh, I'd love you to meet him. 
and uh, him to come on. Uh, I'll get him on now. Uh, because uh, I've got some pictures of Jim's uh, place that he's got, uh, the Orca Killy Maud uh, in Knock Ninny. Knock Ninny, um, trying to think of a little town. It's by Lower Locker and uh, Upper Locker, and I mean, uh, by the lake there. Derry, Derylin, Derylin is the nearest town, and you follow the signs there. Uh, so uh, let's see where Jim is then. Let's hope we're getting him on. All right. If he's not here, I'll tell you about Jim and what he does anyway, because it's a pretty exciting place and it's worth a visit. Uh, yeah, he should be on. I told him he'd be on now. Right. So I'm going to go on to the mumming anyway, and I do the best that I can. And Mama's Straw Boys, Wren Boys. And this is the last uh, and my favorite of the three subjects. I've lived for this. Sorry, I haven't uh, got um, I haven't got uh, any outfits. Uh, I'm not wearing the straw. I did a lot of this right from when I was a child through. I think the last time I did mumming was when I was in my 40s. And uh, it was in the USA. And, of course, they thought I was a complete idiot because in the USA, as far as they were concerned, mumming was parades. And that's very much the USA, I think. Uh, a lot of celebration is done as parades and certainly not as a door-to-door -door thing. That, that seemed very remote. So that was the last time I had an attempt, and uh, people thought I was a complete idiot there. So I certainly, we certainly did a lot in my teens, 20s, and 30s. Um, but mummers are mumming. Uh, as I say to people of the USA, if I go to my photo gallery here and catch up on it, it uh, immediately gives the impression, there we go, of street parades and uh, pantomime type parades um, and people dressed up in costumes wearing masks or something a little similar to the Mardi Gras but happening in December and especially in Pennsylvania but the origins of mumming are very very different uh, to the vast parades as folk drama they may go way back to the Bronze Age or even before this is obviously a medieval uh, presentation and um, they were presented uh, as uh, performed as an expression of the season changes and I started uh, learning uh, folklore stories as a child through um, the medium of mumming and finally at the time I didn't even know it was mumming and friends would join in with me and as I've told this many times I'd go off to these ancient sites pick up the stories by the wells, the stone circles, and so forth. I'd hear about these characters. I'd hear about the conflicts. I'd hear about the seasonal changes. So I'd round up some friends uh, from uh, school, little friends, and they'd all be given characters. We'd have we'd brush out a circle, make out a circle, and we'd do these performances. And what we went through, funnily enough, was the mumming. We'd have the well, I'm going to talk about how the mumming play started but what we did was very much what i'm going to be talking about now and there's much i can i could really perhaps do a whole session on mumming and maybe i will sometime and we can act out online a whole mummers uh 
show that'd be quite a challenge how do you actually do that online there's some very good uh, videos i'm actually going to show you one a bit uh, very shortly and that's why i wanted jim on because it was a video a portion of a video that jim made but there's so much as i say i could talk about it uh a lot of this be tucked into the she water and and tree folklore course uh so today in comparison is going to be a bit of a a brief uh, insight into the world of mumming. Uh, so let me start with the bare bones of the traditional storyline. First, it needs someone to open the space, perhaps move some people away or draw up a performing circle. Uh, sometimes it's just an imaginary one. And often this is done with a broom. And then over time, um, the character doing this brooming and circle making uh, it could be a, the biddy, uh, the hag, a kayak, Bilzebub, a clown, jester, or even the ringmaster or ringmistress. Uh, or it could be uh, the captain himself. And that's what I was going to introduce uh, uh, Jim Ledworth. He's the captain. And he's regarded as the captain. Uh, so any of those characters and say that, it's interesting, I was saying about the men's shed approach, and uh, you say hag and the biddy, and as talking to women once upon a time, you'd say that, and that's really a, a, oppressive and uh, not very nice. But there again, the word Celtic uh, was used as an oppressive word, you know, they're the peasants, yeah. You know, uh, and it was really to kind of suppress the people i'm trying to think of a more appropriate word um uh, condescend i can't think of the word at the moment but uh anyways i will stick with the suppression now but now uh a woman to go around and say i'm a hag and i'm a biddy because what that's now saying i've got all this wisdom so i don't think it's a real put down uh these days so the main characters are brought in one by one uh, into this circle or imaginary circle, and there's at least two of them. And uh, the first is the hero. And in the earliest days, this would be the local chieftain, but later it was the fighting kings and the knights, and they were regarded as uh, the good heroes uh, by the people. And as I say, they started dressing up in straw uh, to start with. And... Uh, and then the second will be the sparring challenger. And there's the other sort of mumming costume, the more modern. There is, that's, uh, in this case, that's Bilzebub with his club. And sometimes he was a villain. Sometimes he was just keeping the crowd in order. But they don't have a real good uh, villain. And that's actually in Jim's uh, Ogilvy Maud's uh, business center, which is wonderful to see. And... Uh, uh, by uh, the upper lock, uh, and then by Nock Nida and uh, Dera, just follow the brown signs from Dera Lynn uh, there. Uh, so, anyway, there's lots of booze when the sparring challenger comes on, and people obviously don't like this person. It represents their opposition, their suppression, maybe, and even the representative of those nasty people in ancient times that would have requisition of their lands or fiercely take their tax uh, from them. But uh, there, are, uh, there, there's a couple of them 
at it uh, outside. That's actually Jim on the right, I think. Uh, but for example, it could be Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham, or you can go ancient and have Lou and Bala, or Cuculan and Ferdia. And that looks very sort of Cuculan and Ferdia, doesn't it? Uh, any sort of opposition. And it can be local uh, people as well. But unfortunately, uh, the most common one uh, when people are reviving these has been the Crusader Knight, uh, such as King George or Hector. Who the hell Hector is? I never found out who Hector is. Anyway, and the opposing uh, person, unfortunately, is an Arab or a Turkish knight. And, and he tends to be called Slasher. Um, there's a sort of polite way. There's two of them. They're looking quite equal. So, of course, uh, that was the old tradition is, is taken from the Crusades. Is, uh, uh, I'm not so sure we should do that now. <laughs> a Turkish knight called Slasher. Anyway, of course, uh, Scotland, they turn it around a bit, as they do with a lot of these things. And the good guy there is a Hades character. I haven't got a picture of him. But uh, his Galishin is the Scottish one. And uh, in the Republic of Ireland, especially in the northern counties, uh, St. George actually might be swapped from being the hero to becoming the villain. And St. Patrick is the hero over George. And there is St. Patrick the hero there. Um. <clears throat> Now, let's see. There's Patrick again. He's kind of, he's slain St. George there. So they, they turn it around uh, in Ireland a bit. But I'm surprised we haven't got Gronya and Draken version. But as I was saying, it's very much a men's shed type of thing. Uh, <laughs> women for a while were kept out of these battle parts. And there are the George versus the dragon uh, ones. Uh, I'm surprised it's not those. Now, I go down into uh, County uh, Wexford, and the battle hero characters are people, well, it's Colin Keel, uh, it's not really of uh, Wexford, but Brian Baru, Art McMorrow, Wolf Tone, Roger, uh, Robert Emmett. They all become the hero characters when they do the mummers there. And records indicate that this type of mumming actually uh, has gone back at least 2,500 years in Ulster uh, when it was scribed that men in tall conical masks entertained King Conger, King, entertained King Conor at Emmanmacca. And this was at the win winter solstice. And now at Emmanmacca, you've got these lovely characters, the armor rhymers. And they today they wear these lovely wicker made conical hats. And as you see, there's a horse there and other animal heads. And I'm going to go into horses' heads when I do the symbolism, uh, when I'm getting the course together. So um, this is the uh, mumming show. Uh, and, oh, there we go. There's some more of the armor mummers. And even there's the horse there. This is uh, uh, Jim's crowd. I still haven't heard from Jim. Very disappointed. Go on, Jim. Where are you? Uh, he has a message back, and he only messaged me just before this. He's read it, so we'll see what's going on. Now, hopefully, he'll come in anyway. But uh, the mumming show let's talk about the mumming show itself. There's a barbaric um fight that takes place, here's a bit of a barbaric uh fight, and it's done with uh, wooden swords usually. And the hero kills the villain, uh, the booed guy, 
and uh, up to this point, uh, the scripts that they've been talking, and we'll have some a bit uh, very soon, it's all been rhyming poetry. And uh, next into the circle is the healer. After the, you know, this uh, slasher or whoever has been slayed, in comes the healer. There he is. There's an old thing. And uh, a medicine man, a doctor, and he comes into the circle and he starts bragging about his past healing achievements. And he starts bragging these uh, in uh, a lot of uh, nonsense prose. Uh, there's a rumor that he ran for presidency uh, later. But uh, here he is, the healer. And uh, he has to bring the uh, potion down to the villain, uh, down the villain's throat. There we go. I think there he goes. That's a healer putting some potion down a, a throat. And then the villain comes alive. But uh, when the villain comes alive, instead of continuing the battle, there's bonding, there's forgiveness, there's friendship and peace between the hero and the villain. And then the person who created the circle, Billsy Bob, the, the hag, the biddy, goes around with a hat to collect the money. And that's taken from uh, Jim's uh, visitor's center. Now, if you pause to think about this, it's not really a good guys and bad guys story, but this is the way it's performed because us humans have always seemed to like the thrill of a bit of bar barbaricness, I think we can call it. So we always seem to like that. It gets our attention. But I'd like to think of these short plays as being possibly a process of inspiring balance, tolerance, forgiveness, and peace. Though at the core of them, of course, it is a celebration of the end of one cycle of seasons and we're going into another. But let's enter this new cycle in more balance. That's the wish uh, of getting rid of the hostility uh, that's built up during the last year. And I think these folk dramas are aimed to bring as much of that as the passing into another year. And as a little drama is performed around your time, which is the main transition time of this time of year, when we're entering into the next cycle. In older ancient versions, this was also a fertility rites time. And if Jim was on, he'd tell you about, he follows these around Eastern Europe where they really are fertility rites. I'm not going into the details, but those mummers uh, in the grass skirts, there's, there's usually a bit more revealing uh, or they, they add to it. Anyway, uh, so the battle itself tends to be a kind of wooing uh, it could be wooing of men, two men who are competing for the same woman. Uh, run, rutting, <laughs> two men. So a mother's play could be rutting. Uh, but it's even a lesson in union and conception. Uh, those things can't be bonded until the suiting competition has actually soothes themselves down into a calm. I could give you more reasons, uh, but those are some. Uh, uh, but here is someone who was humoured by all that. Uh, I don't need to introduce him. There he is. And funnily enough, that's that's Jim, uh, who is not with us. Um, and uh, that was in um, Enniskillen. Uh, so he is. So there was uh, Charles inspecting the mummers. And then uh, that day, in, uh, that, the following morning in the Daily Mail, there was this cartoon. If you can read that, 
self-explanatory. <laughs> I thought that. So, uh, the uh, Okakilamov, uh, I wonder if they got the royal seal for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so now, how to consider mummers and folk drama people, how they're dressed. So that day you may uh, see mummers, uh, let's get to the dressing thing. Uh, you might see mummers who, um, variation of the modern style, ragged clothes, wearing masks, that's how you might see. Well, that's an old picture of mummers, but that's kind of uh, how you might see them uh, now. And then the other, uh, and again, we've got the Orgachili Maud. Is, uh, and this is being revived much more now, is uh, for the older tradition of weaving costumes and masks from straw. And this makes a lot of sense because the straw is now stripped of grain. It's what's a leftover resource uh, from the harvest. So uh, why not uh, use it up? The different straw characters are identified. Yeah, how do you tell the difference? You get that. How do you know who's the good guy, the bad guy, the healer, and so forth? And they actually, they actually have badges. Uh, or a different weave of costume, uh, or the master made a bit differently, or they wear different dried plants. That's how you can identify the different different herbs. So that's how they get to know. So anyway, there's a bit of uh, mask making that's going on, and I can forget who it is. I wish uh, someone who's been making masks with the Orga Killing Maud uh, for some time, and I think I got a little bit of a video clip of him as well. Um, let's see if I can get a bit of a video of him. Give me a second. Uh, there he is. Just a few seconds. So there you are. There's a little bit of uh, that uh, with the video. And uh, let's see if I can get... Whoops, he hasn't kind of disappeared yet, has he? Let's see if I can take him off. Um, ah, yeah, he's going again. Okay, how? Whoa, where I want? How do I come back? Oh, please bring me back. There we go. There we go. I'm back again. And uh, so wearing masks. Uh, well, that's for disguise. The reason for that is for disguise, not being identified. That's actually. Um, Hennigan's, uh, that's uh, uh, Hennigan's Center there near Swinford in Mayo. Uh, it's a fascinating place to go. Tom Hennigan with a couple of uh, young lads there, uh, and they're trying not to be identified. Now, the players uh, who do the mama's rituals annually, they actually keep it a secret what roles they play. So when you actually get the mama's play, you don't know who's uh, you're supposed to know, know who who's who who is the hero, who is going to be the slain one, who is going to be the um, healer. And in the old plays, even the biddy, uh, the hag, and so forth, they were played by men uh, for hundreds of years. Women weren't even allowed into these uh, plays, but now uh, women play all of the roles. Uh, that's uh, Coming. But the reason for keeping the role secret was this sustained secrecy and mystique uh, during the performance. And the reason uh, for keeping the mystery going is that uh, so people would pay attention because they would believe that these mystery people they couldn't identify have been sent to them by the she 
or by the dead of the underworld or the fairies. And these players were never to be messed with. So there was much more respect and attention that was upheld for these performances while they were being kept secret uh, than if they come through the door. Ah, you're Billy the farmer's lad up the road. You're Seamus. Ah, well, hey, good to see you. Blah, blah, blah. How's Mary doing? They never get on with the play. So you've got to get this secrecy and attention so they could do the full performance and bless the house. And for, few, for several years, I was fascinated by collecting scripts used by mummers and other folk drama groups. So uh, for many years before then, there were many years before there was any public internet on Google, I used to go looking for mama scripts through libraries. And my two favorite was the Cecil Sharp House in Camden Town in London. I haven't got a picture of that. And there was a lovely folklore reference library in Hereford, um, not far from the Welsh border, both in England. And the biggest surprise was how the mummer scripts helped to establish the printed broadsheet trade. Um, because printers, printing presses were starting to become cheap at uh, the beginning of the 19th century. So people wanting to set up in businesses, home businesses, being printers, but they weren't investigative journalists in those days. So what they were going to print. And they picked up on songs, they picked up on these mummer's play scripts, and they could actually sell these uh, through street broadsheet. Uh, vendors, and uh, I think uh, have I got? A, I should have a broadsheet vendor picture for you here somewhere. Uh, who? Th there's a man who's uh, vending them. There you go. There he is, and that's that's why it's called a broadsheet. Sometimes they were broad, sometimes uh, they were long. Um, a mummy has been around since medieval times, of course. As I say, thousands of years before there were this, but there was. People could get these from these vendors. And, of course, this was Celtic Romance Revival time. So this was a great addition uh, to bring you that romance about. Uh, but the medieval scribes and, and gospel preachers, they adapted mumming to the idea of creating and performing mystery and miracle plays. There's another diversion. And these were... They were there to perform the creation with Adam and Eve, uh, things like that, uh, the last judgment. And of course, now what it was doing, it was mumming style used to create biblical stories. And they were not, they were not five to 10 minutes long like the mummers, but they were performed in sort of festival style. There'd be several stories, one after another, for the people to follow. It'd be done over several days, uh, and that'd be for the um, mystery and miracle plays. Uh, it, was, it was regarded, really, as a, a, an easier way of teaching the Psalms and scriptures rather than through preaching and reading and through the churches. It was just, again, a bit like when the Sisi uh, brought in the carols uh, and the nativity play, just get the people involved, entertain them. But I suspect uh, early traditional mumming actually learned from this, and they use the same medium to share folklore tales. That's how I started with storytelling anyway. And there's a storytelling uh, creature right there. Now, mystery and miracle, and even the word minister, are words that come from a Latin 
mesisterium, and that means craft. And perhaps that's why witches practice a craft uh, out of that word. Um, so, as I say, from the broadsheets, groups of people would get together with the broadsheets. Someone would buy one from the street seller. Oh, come on, let's have a look at this. And uh, groups performing uh, mystery and miracles, they were different. They had already got their scriptures, and they were called guilds. And there was a festival in Dublin, 1458. And it went on, uh, that's where the first one happened. It went on for a few years. It was an annual festival held at Hogan's Green. And it would it last a week. And it, it would start before solstice time. And it would last on to Christmas Eve. And it featured several traditions from of seasonal drama. You got country people came in, they could do their mama's play. And the Carpenters Guild, they got together and presented a nativity play. Tailors got together and presented the Adam and Eve story. And uh, Bakers presented the story of Ceres, of course. And Blacksmiths presented the story of Vulcan. And then the clergy, they had to do their thing, which was presenting the, the martyrdom of the apostles. Now, I'm going to go back to the modern mumming. From the earliest 19th century, as I started talking about, people would buy these scripts from those street sellers, the uh, the broad sellers, broadsheet sellers, and they would gather with their family and friends in the village and small town and set up their reenactment troops. And as I say, this is all part of the Celtic Romance years. Uh, and the way it worked was, for a while was the uh, a family and friends of the troop would dress up in woven straw and raggedy clothes with masks and visit. Uh, door to uh, their neighborhood, uh, door to door. I think that'd be a more appropriate picture. There they go. They're going door to door, raggedy. Yes, Santa came into it eventually, and uh, with that mask. And then we're going door to door uh, through to their neighborhood there. And the mama's uh, play ritual would be sandwiched between songs, jokes, and tunes. And and through that, it, it's a show. They do the play. They do some songs, jokes, a few tunes. So it's all nice little thing. It was done in about, the whole lot was done in about 15, uh, 20 minutes, hopefully. <laughs> they got people to get around. So the home, as I'm showing earlier, they host the, the there's a crowd turning up, the, the home being the host. And the visitors, first thing they would do is try to guess who these characters are. Uh, who's under the costume? Even before they started playing, they tried to guess who they are, but they still have this superstition that they were sent by the fairies, sent by the sheep. So the mask and the, uh, after a while, of course, the mask and the helmets, they would come off and everyone would share a bit of a crack before moving on to the next house or the cottage. So the type of this type of mumming would have started or oh, in ancient times, it would have been around Epiphany time. That would have been when they would have congregated. There would have been a solstice celebration. And some of those older traditions, um, I'm going to be talking about wassailing in a couple of weeks, but wassailing, plough Monday, uh, sword dancing ceremonies, and indeed the Scottish geysers of Sawan and Halloween and the, the pace egg and rhymers of around in Balkan Easter shows that all this goes on through the, this three-month winter period from the Sawan through to Imbolc. There's this continuous winter transformation celebration and acknowledging it. 
And add to that the Scottish hogmany of uh, the old Christmas, uh, which is Epiphany, uh, the tradition of first footing. I'm going to be talking about that on the 27th. And first footing really became mummers without the costumes and masks. But, uh, and with the first footing, the first went into the house. They hoped would be dark, handsome, and carrying a lump of coal. But I'm going to talk about this to see on the 27th. And now the Scottish geysers, they may, may have actually come from an Irish tradition. In fact, I'm sure they are, especially from around Meath, around Tara, and so on. But so in the wonder, there's uh, mummers now in Ireland. There's mummers, uh, there's straw boys, there's wren boys. So it's, uh, they're all over in different forms around uh, Ireland. And a lot of these traditions, as I mentioned earlier, they were abundant around Newfoundland as well. But they got outlawed there after a troop of mummers. They actually murdered someone, unfortunately, when they got too rough in uh, 19th century. So that was it. Mummers got, were gone. But Newfoundland's revived it from the 1980s. But unfortunately, it's not the old ways of the door-to-door, -door, I don't think. They've brought in the sort of parade type of mumming, like the Pennsylvania way. And so the intimate neighborly door-to-door -door cracker. Anyone from Newfoundland, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that actually happens there. The actual mumming dates, of course, have changed uh, from Epiphany to New Year, St. Stephen's Day, Christmas Eve, winter solstice. And as I say, the Scottish guys, as they do their thing or used to do their thing, in uh, Sawan Halloween, but now it's just been watered down to trick-or-treat in most places, unfortunately. So it's worth pointing out how mumming has evolved. And obviously the tradition has been around a lot longer than printed uh, broadsheets were published. And uh, one of the earliest outlets, it really has evolved into different things. And one of the things mumming evolved into was Punch and Judy. And uh, Punch and Judy shows came to England uh, from Italy around the 16th century. Uh, and the English puppeters then started making puppets of the mummers' characters. And uh, so it's Punch and Judy, a mummers so, uh, sort of merged. And so they acted out the mummers' ritual, but Punch and Judy actually stayed in the show. And then the other thing as well, that came, um, of course, Punch and Judy shows, if you go to them now, they're very much watered down as well, just a little bit of a fight and, there you got the uh, the the alligator or the crocodile eating the sausages. You get that on the beachfront now, but uh, there's no sense of the mumming in it anymore. And the, uh, the other one uh, tradition, and I've been involved in this as well, is pantomimes. They're a very similar story. They came from Italy to England in the 16th century and then adapted to mama's scripts to give more outlandish shows and then the Grimm's fairy tales became introduced into them. And suddenly it became bigger in Scotland uh, than in England. Uh, but for hundreds of years, again, no women involved. Uh, the dame is the central figure in the pantomime and uh, generally acted by a man. And still to this day, and I think it's perhaps only Scotland that still do this, is that the dame, the woman of the pantomime, is always a man. And the leading man is always acted by a woman. Uh, they don't do that in Ireland. The leading man is a man and the dame is a woman in those times. But that, in Scotland, it's reverse roles and in Northern England uh, as well. And even if I can get some pictures up, 
and this this might be a bit of a surprise to you even the first three star Wars movies that were made integrate the skeleton of the traditional mama's play script and uh with some of the uh second battle of moitura with uh lou if i can get some pictures up there's an artist's impression there we go we got lou with his spear and bala and the battling duo uh it's just kind of like these characters that you're familiar with where are they come on oh don't say the picture's not there i didn't upload it i had a lovely one uh oh dear it didn't upload uh i wonder if i can find it give me a second i might be able to get it uh and it just shows you how the star wars comes in and it's very uh mummerish um i'm just gonna find, get it out for you just for the hell of it uh right there where are you you must be around somewhere um ah got it right give me a second and i'll have this one up for you and show you that one yeah there we go there we go because if you remember um uh, i forget what number it is but um after all the fighting with darth vader and luke uh they actually came together just like uh in the mama's plays where the hero and the villain they bonded so the two of them uh bonded there in the star wars so there you go you got mama the star wars was inspired by uh mumming anyway before i finish the mumming and folk drumming today and i've had no word back from jim very disappointed uh i don't know where the heck he went to it was a great shame because uh, i wanted him to talk about they got tg for special documentary coming up. I was hoping he would talk about that and how they're actually coping with the mumming through COVID. Uh, they are, they have been at workshops, even that video I showed you of the man making the helmets. That was only done, uh, about a week or two ago. Anyway, this was, uh, Jim's got, a, 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 he's got a, a video out. It's 14 minutes long, I think. It's called Mama's Mask and Mischief. So what I've done, I've got a few minutes of that. And it'll just show you uh, what happens uh, with the mumming. And I think I'm going to be pretty much closing off with this because I've, I've, I'm well over time, and I? So it's just, well, uh, I was just muffling all. Mischievous tradition of mumming. A wild and wonderful spectacle the mummer's performance defies description. Why is it to be broken? Sure, it's not even clear where it came from in the first place. I am convinced that mumming goes back to the Celtic times. It's an old Celtic tradition, or is it even an Irish tradition? Go back to uh, pre-Christian uh, fertility rites, probably of Celtic origin. Um, and, and they all, they're all about bringing health and life and happiness. The house visit involves a number of people uh, visiting, going from house to house. They come to the door, they knock on the door, or they blow a horn as they're approaching the house to announce their arrival. They knock on the door and they formally ask, uh, permission to come inside.
disguising oneself is, is quite important from a social um, uh, perspective uh, because many of the mummers would have been young men going out and they would this would be uh, have given them license to behave in a way that they wouldn't know there would be an element of surprise there's a fun uh, element for the audience in trying to identify who the person is and of course the mummers often speak in a very clipped or style of um, mumbling that's what the, the term mumming originally means and from the middle ages it means to mumble here comes a captain mummer and all me merry men room room give us room to rhyme and we'll show you some activity around this christmas time they perform their play and then they're awarded with food uh, in the past here comes a reality bub and under my arm i carry a club and in my hand a frying pan how would i the jelly man we got drinks in houses and we done all sorts of things in houses this is a completely country scene you can imagine the situation where you're in a, a little country house and we're just reaching the use of reason and nobody would have told us and suddenly at Christmas time because it's a very odd occasion that the mums would appear. In fact, it was the only one time of the year around Christmas time and Halloween that would appear. Here comes us that didn't come yet. Big head and little ones. The more my head is big and my wits is small. What shall we do? You dance that'll please you all. The battle is the core uh, element of the play. The plot all is as simple as it is hinges around this combat. You're enabling, you're laying the groundwork for um, the new year to begin. This man here, sir, of his deep and deadly wounds, I cure. What can you cure, doctor? I can cure many, many things, sir. I can cure things like the big plague, the wee plague, the plague within, the plague without, the pip, the pole, the palsy, and even that blasted gout. Give me an old doll of three score years and ten, with a knuckle of our big toe broken off, and I can put that on again. I've got a wee bottle here called Hocus Pocus Sigh and Pain. Does it work? Never fails. I think we've been to fire just in case. The Sally campaign, it's this magical form of medicine. It's the whole mystery of uh, how um, this person lying is, is resurrected from the dead. You know, with this focus, focus, Sally campaign, rise up, dead man, and fight again. So there you go, a bit of an introduction into mumming. I hope you enjoyed that. I better let you go as soon as possible. Before, let's tell you what's coming up. There's a lot of uh, people are loving the idea of next week on the 13th. We've got Oshin, Ellen, and the Reindeer Folklore, and uh, that's on the 13th. And then uh, on the uh, 20th, it's going to be a lovely uh, solstice one, your log tales and uh, I, th I think we've already we've got special guests on the next two weeks uh, lined up 
And then after the Christmas, it's going to be a bit of a casual one, but it's going to be preparing for first footing. And also I'm going to be uh, covering uh, the wastling. And uh, it's going to be a bit different as the uh, first footing traditions have faded away a bit. But this is going to be a session based on personal affirmations and fellowship with your local communities. And as I say, I'm going to also include uh, the wassailing. And uh, just to say, uh, there's a few comments uh, before uh, I uh, say my farewells to you. Uh, Donna's fascinating. Thank you very much. Claire's enjoyed that. Uh, and we've got uh, Elise, who's uh, inspired. That's great. And... Uh, this different kind of missile stones are Eritrean, but not enough oak trees for the other kind. And Bridget's going to inquire about the uh, mistletoe. So that's fabulous. And as they say with this, uh, or this and the um, Labyrinth Gardens are brought to you by uh, Patreon. And uh, for those subscribers, I'm still working on it. And I hope after Christmas you'll get the first installments. Anybody who's a subscriber with the Patreon is going to get uh, the the course, the uh, the she water and tree folklore course, which goes into the subjects of these Sunday sessions, uh, into a sort of a greater depth, and I'll keep adding to that. So, thank you very much. It's been a very long session today. Uh, sorry we didn't have Jim. Uh, I would have cut back. I wouldn't. Uh, I would have let him talk about the stuff that I did to you. Uh, so, for those of you who are watching this as an archive, keep commenting here. I keep watching. Uh, the comments after through the next few days, and I'll answer you. And uh, anything, any questions you've got to ask, uh, ask away, and I'll answer very soon. So please uh, subscribe uh, on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, there are bells now uh, on both Facebook and YouTube that you can click and it remind you what's coming up next Sunday. So thank you so much. Enjoy a safe week. Uh, full of uh, all the wonders, especially at this time of year, even with all the fog and frost and stuff and all those lovely enchantments you're going to enjoy. So until next Sunday, play well. I'm off. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.